the, um, on these special devoted Sundays where we set aside time to bring attention to um, baptism, which is this beautiful picture, this great um, kind of testimony, picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ um, that we can do publicly and share that. And, and there are times when we've taught through that and gone into the roots of really where it comes from and what all it means. And then we also get to celebrate family dedication, um, which is a great, another great kind of ceremony that we practice and that we, um, that we get to experience together. The great reminder that we are hugely blessed as a church to have children in our midst. And there are plenty of churches um, around the country, around the world that would give anything to have children um, in their congregation like we do. And we always use it to take just a second and remind everybody that that, that is a blessing that we have. And that, in fact, if, if, if you find yourself distracted by children acting like children, uh, making noises or wandering around or doing kid things, um, your, your distraction meter may be off. That may be a problem for you, not for that family. And that if you have that tendency in your heart to want to look over and kind of glare at a family that's not controlling their children enough, um, that's probably a, an issue that is in your heart. Um, we think that you need to wrestle through how do we come alongside and bless and encourage each other and constantly be grateful for the fact that we have kids in our midst. And so um, let's, we celebrate that together, and the fact that we get to do that is huge. And then also um, communion um, here, this, this great, uh, once again, this parable, this mystery in a sense in which the, the, the bread and the, I mean, what we're using in the packages can barely be called bread, but the bread and the, and the juice or the, the cup and the bread that we take as a reminder to, to remember what Christ has done. And we're going to experience that today. And often we will set this aside on a Sunday like this and just teach one of those three concepts at least in depth. But because of some of the insights that we've been wrestling through with Daniel, especially chapter 10, it just, it just worked um, and did so in the first service to experience communion in the midst of this chapter. And so just, it's just, um, I'm excited for us to dive into this in a new way as well. So first we need to start um, with a timeline. Um, I hope that you get to experience today the power of, of really a good study of Scripture um, and done in community that, that a few of us coming together, those of you who listen to the in-between podcast, it's, um, it's a time that John and Paul and I and Colson's there and we, we go through, we discuss these, uh, these aspects of the sermon coming up and, and looking at different topics and challenging aspects of it and sometimes things that you can't unpack in 35 minutes on a Sunday morning. Um, but this week it's a great example of why we have that time to help us wrestle through a tough passage that then... Um, brings some, just some amazing glory to God and some encouragement to us in the midst of it. Now the challenge comes as to whether or not I can communicate it. Um, it's, that's, that happens regularly where something is, is like a fire caught up in my bones and then I just, I just mess it up trying to deliver the, the concepts to you guys. And so hopefully that won't happen, that this won't die somewhere between what God has taught me this week and what you're hearing so speaking of killing a sermon, I'm going to start with a date. It's in 536 B.C. That's where we are in Daniel chapter 10, is 536 B.C. So <clears throat> here we are about 500 years before the birth of Christ. This is the third year of the emperor Cyrus, the third year that he's been ruling over the nation of Babylon as well as Persia. So he's been over Persia for a while. They then conquer Babylon and this is three years, approximately three years later, after he's conquered Babylon. So about 536 B.C. So some significant things happened 
in 539 B.C., which, those of you who remember your history classes, 539 B.C. comes before 536 B.C., right? Because that's how B.C. works. It's counting the wrong direction. It's counting down towards zero. So 539 is three years before 536. Good. Just making sure everybody's on the same page. Here's some things that happened. One, Babylon fell to the Persians in about 539 B.C. Therefore, that's Cyrus's first year as ruler over Babylon. Also, that's the first year that Darius the Mede, who was one of Cyrus's generals, we believe, then takes over the leadership of the city of Babylon. So this great grand city, a general, is going to be the one running it for the foreseeable future. And we've gone through a lot of details with this building up till this time. It's, that's Darius the Mede, who is made famous by putting Daniel in the lion's den, for example. This is, this is who we're dealing with. <clears throat> There's some other things going on there. I obviously like that now Babylon and Persia are in some way united. Within a year of that, within the year of 539 B.C., Cyrus, that, that Persian emperor, is going to make a public declaration granting the Jews the freedom to return to Israel. So remember, 70 years before they had, approximately 70 years before, they had been started to be exiled back into Babylon and spread out around, along the, uh, among the Babylonians. So now, after 70 or so years, as God promised, sometime around 539, 538 B.C., within that year, Cyrus declares that the people of Israel can go home. In fact, we learned last week or the week before that, that in fact, he may have done that for many nations. The Babylonians had a habit of exiling people, of, of kidnapping them and, and spreading them around their countries. And now it seems like Cyrus had declared that these people could all go home, including the Jews. So here we are, 536 B.C., the third year of Cyrus's rule of Babylon. These dates will matter. Um, there is a quiz later, just so you'll know. All right, so um, some of you are going to wish you'd been taking notes during all that too late now. All right, so remember, Daniel is mourning, praying, and fasting, and has been doing so for three weeks, 21 days, and over Passover, he's been doing that, um, and beyond that. Now, why? Why is Daniel mourning? Why is he sad? Is he sad over the condition of Israel? He's heard word of how, how awful it is when people go back to Jerusalem and how, how just destroyed it is, maybe. Is he sad over the sinful condition of his people? The vast majority are not returning back to Israel. They are not even returning to God. They are still worshiping the gods of the Persians and the Babylonians. Is he sad that so few have gone home when they could? Maybe especially because he's too old to go home or not allowed by Cyrus to go home. You're dealing with a man who's probably in his 90s at this point. So is he still troubled by the visions of the future that he's already been having and not sure that how they're going to happen and what that's going to mean, I think that's certainly part of it, is that he is still troubled by the visions that he's been having, the things he's been seeing, and the understandings he's been experiencing. What does he do when he's troubled? He reaches out to his Lord, and he begins to pray, and nothing happens. I think all of us can identify with this. We've all experienced that, where we call out to the Lord, and it feels like our cries don't make it past the ceiling. They just bounce right back to us. When we call out to God, and here we have a situation where Daniel is calling out to the Lord, and a week passes, and two week pass, weeks pass, and then three weeks pass, and, and he's not getting the answers that he wants. He's not getting the response that he feels like he needs. 
He's troubled, and now he goes out for this nature walk after 21 days. And back in the beginning of the chapter, we see this brilliant person appear, this personage who looks so much like the Jesus Christ in all of his glory as revealed in Revelation 1 or in the book of Ezekiel. We have a new theory for this. I'm going to unpack here in a minute. Not just for academic purposes, although that would be fascinating to me and to a few people in the audience, but because how this is going to play out. It becomes very important. For for sure, here's the thing, I had in my mind this one character appearing, this Jesus-like character appearing. And that was kind of it. Then we have this one character, and he interacts with Daniel, mano y mano, just the two of them. But the problem is we know there are at least two more characters for sure if you jump ahead from Daniel chapter 10 to Daniel chapter 12. Look at this in Daniel 12, 5. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. So there's two characters. But look even further in verse 6, chapter 12. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these these wonders? Okay, so the Jesus figure, the man in linen isn't one of those two. He's the third one, and he's hovering somehow above the Tigris River in all of this great glory that he has. And someone, maybe other than the two, because it doesn't say them, someone else asks this one a question. So now we're up to four in addition to Daniel, potentially. And it's going to even get bigger. The Christ figure is there, floating above the Tigris. He's not on the bank with Daniel, but someone keeps touching Daniel. So now we've got someone who's got to be near enough to Daniel to reach out and touch him and who tells him the story of the prince of Persia. So let's let's go back and re-examine with the theory that there are several members of God's host here. That there is this one figure, this grand figure who's who, who really out, out glorifies everybody else, but then there's several others as well. So 10, chapter 10, 5 through 6 displays this figure who looks like the Jesus encounter in Revelation 1 or in Ezekiel. Again, this was unpacked really well by John and Paul on the podcast when I wasn't there, and they're really kind of debating without me present um, how I'm wrong about this passage, and so, uh, which it's a great one. It really is worth listening to. Um, and, so, uh, and so I wonder, as we're looking at this, we have this one, but this, this person keeps touching him. That's five through six. Then one speaks. Someone, many people think this is Gabriel, although, I mean, it doesn't say, <laughs> but regardless, I've, I've said that I could not believe that this one who speaks could be Jesus Christ. That was the debate going on. I just don't see how it could be Jesus. Yes, it looks like Jesus. But the problem is we get this passage that indicates that this, this person who's speaking had a problem with the prince of Persia, couldn't get away from him, and that they needed help. Now, could that be Jesus using, uh, you know, making use of his servants to come and help him and serve him when he could have just you know, done like that with the prince? Sure. He does it with us all the time. We talked about that in detail last week. If you want to go back and listen to the idea of God applying authority to his created beings and power to his created beings, which he doesn't need us to have, but he allows us to have. Is that plausible? It is, but the language feels more desperate than that to me. I, I, I called, Michael came to help me because I, was, I was, couldn't get away from, we're going to look at this passage in a second. So I was struggling with like, how can that be Jesus? Jesus is going, I just can't fix this problem. So maybe the problem was, that there's more than one person here 
speaking. Maybe that's the actual answer to this. So we have this one speaks. So in 10, 16 through 18, and even 13 and following, these may, be a, these may be totally different people. In fact, I now think they are. Look in verse 16, which we'll see later. Behold, one of the likeness of the children of man touched my lips, then opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who stood before me, O oh my Lord, by the way, the word Lord there just means sir, this isn't Yahweh. O oh my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me and I retain no strength. And then again in verse 18, seemingly maybe even another person. Again, one having the appearance of man touched me and strengthened me. And this language here, appearance of man or the children of man, is not the same language as son of man, which is a title applied to Jesus. So if, if it was, we would be more leaning towards them being these. Okay, this, is, this part is Jesus. No, <clears throat> it's different terminology. So we're left with a lot of space. Here's the new theory. There are multiple different people here. Who knows how many? Maybe several more, which means that the being that is talking about needing help from Michael is a different angelic being than the one who it looks like Christ. If that's the case, then there's no reason to think the magnificent being isn't Christ, and all the reasons to think that it is Christ. That there we have the Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity in his glory, hovering above the waters of the Tigris River with multiple angelic beings. And all of a sudden, when you begin to put together some other stuff I'm going to show you in a minute, this begins to make sense in a new way. So multiple of these angelic hosts, one of them who faced the Prince of Persia, another one, the second person of the Trinity, this is an important meeting. This is not just a bunch of nobodies showing up somewhere. This is, this is the most important thing that could be going on on the planet right now, is this thing right here going on with Daniel by the Tigris River. In fact, as I began to understand it, realizing this is a hot zone. This is a combat zone. This is, they're in the midst of a spiritual war, enough of a spiritual war that one of them couldn't get there because the prince of Persia was fighting him, and Michael had to go fight against that creature in order to allow this one to come and deliver this message. In fact, I'm going to go on in a minute and tell you that I think there has been a, a the, the, whatever war was going on that was a cold war in Persia in the spiritual realm became a hot war two years before, and it is still running here, and they are in a combat zone. So now when I picture this scene, what I, and I asked about this on Facebook, and there were numerous people who threw out ideas, and I went and looked at them, and none of them fit perfectly with what I wanted to, to show. But here's the idea. You know the scenes in movies where either the president is getting off of a, a plane or something in a, in a combat zone, or the general is, or the colonel is, and the soldiers, you know, all the, all the foot soldiers bail out, and they're all facing in every direction with guns, and they're ready to fire, and some of them are laying down, and they're hiding behind things. But then the commanding officer just kind of strolls off the helicopter you know, looking around like this, totally, like totally entrusting in, the, in these soldiers to, co to cover him and make sure he's okay. But they're all facing up because if you're in a hot zone, you don't just, you don't just show up, right? I mean, you got to have a plan. And now what I'm picturing is that the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, has shown up to make sure a message is delivered the way he wants it delivered by the people he wants delivering it. And his secret service has shown up with him, and they've now encircled this whole area around the Tigris River to make sure that all of this is handled correctly because this messenger is here. And the last time the messenger tried to get here, the prince of Persia stopped him, and no one's stopping him this time. 
Michael has taken that one. What about the Prince of Greece? And what about the whatever? What happens if they show up? Well, Jesus has shown up with his personal guard to make sure this message gets delivered the way it's supposed to. The significance of this moment went from being a cool story in the Bible in Daniel chapter 10 that no one really ever studies very much to suddenly becoming a key moment in a major spiritual warfare. Why? What is going on here? What's the, what's the picture that's happening? This is an important gathering of people. So I want you to have that correct picture as we then jump into the passage and continue through it. Starting in verse 13. Now this angelic being, maybe, again, maybe Gabriel, maybe not, whoever it is. Verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the king of Persia. And came to help you, make you understand that what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. So after breaking away from the prince of Persia, the messenger has come to explain the vision that Daniel is experiencing and has been experiencing and, and to, to, to express with words what's happening. It's about the future. So Daniel, he recognizes, is probably confused. So how did Daniel respond? Now, all of a sudden, Daniel's response makes even more sense to me. When he had spoken to me, verse 15, according to these words, I turned my face to the ground and I was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. I know there's a clever saying, and we talked about this in our worldview thing, that silence is violence. But the truth is, silence is often wisdom. There's a time to speak and there's a time to be still and quiet. One answer is not always the correct answer. Sometimes being silent is wrong. Sometimes speaking is wrong. In this case, Daniel is humble enough to recognize this is a moment for silence. This very humbled picture, his face down. I'm dealing with someone of great importance here. In fact, I'm dealing with several someones of great importance here. He is humbled by the attention of these personages. This is kind of the root. This idea is the root of why we bow our heads and close our eyes when we pray. It's because we acknowledge we're coming into the presence of a God who not only is He our friend and our Father... Not only does he love us and is he crazy about us, but he's also the God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, the utter sovereign being of all beings, the king of kings and lord of lords. And so those two things aren't in competition with each other. They collide in this God who we serve, as you're going to see. It's part of where that comes from. So I want you to imagine, in order to get the correct emotional feel, maybe for what's being experienced here by Daniel, is this. I want you to imagine that you find out from a friend that the president wants to send you a message. That you get a message and it says, hey, the president's sending you a message. Trump is going to send you a message. He has a personal message for you that he wants to send you. And you'd be like, well, that's interesting. That's, I mean, that's kind of cool. It's probably just one of those like, you know, happy birthday with a stamp, you know, 10 by 10 glossy with a little stamp at the bottom that says Donald J. Trump or something. You'd be like, I mean, that's kind of cool, but I mean, all right. You're thinking, he says, no, no, a messenger's going to deliver it to you. We're not just going to mail it. A messenger's going to deliver it to you. Well, that may be a little important than that. Man, when this, when this you know, intern shows up with my little document, whatever it is, that could be important. There's a knock at the door, and you show up, and it's not an intern. It's Mike Pence and Melania Trump. And they're like, hey, we've got the message. This is an important message. Donald want to make sure we got this to you. In fact... He's standing back there by the car to make sure we deliver this correctly. And you look up, and there's the president back there, and his wife and his vice president are there with a package in front of you. And Mike Pence leans forward and says, like, hey, just, 
Sorry, we're, we're running way behind here because Putin tried to stop us from getting here to you. He, he actually had a bunch of soldiers and stuff that he tried to stop the, the motorcade for us to get to you. Um, but we were, we were able to get through. The Secret Service came in and got him out of the way. So we've now we've got this message to put in your hands. And you're, at this point, you're probably going like, I don't want the message, <laughs> right? I don't want to be a part of this at all. Leave me out. Of, I don't know what this is about, but leave me out. Like, this is terrifying. I don't. And, and you'd be going like, who am I supposed to be speaking to anyway? Do I, I mean, like... Who am I? What is going on? Like, that's what you would be, okay? And rightfully so. Now, magnify that times several million and imagine the significance of Daniel, this 90-year-old, frail, sick man, wandering along the bank of the Tigris, and suddenly the second person of the Trinity appears over the Tigris River, and his whole entourage appears with them. And then this angel comes up and says, hey, sorry, I'm late. I was trying to be here. I would have been here 20 days ago if not for the prince of Persia. But you know what the message we have for you? We finally got it. And Daniel's going, I don't even know who I'm supposed to look at now. Like, I, I'm, it's not, I, you know what? Okay. And the significance then, then he reaches out. Daniel is humbled by all of this. He is grateful by all of this. He is not sure what to think about all of this. And then this being reaches out and touches his lips. Now, this is a prophetic pattern. This is an intimate thing. You don't just reach out and touch someone's lips. It's not something that you just play around with. This is, this is a special moment. There's something significant going on here. But this prophetic pattern, as we see in Isaiah 6, 5 through 7, when God is prepared for the prophet to speak, he touches his lips. We see it here. And I said... When Isaiah finds out he's going to get to be a prophet, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. You can identify with that, can't you? <clears throat> for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hands a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Same thing with Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.9. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Apparently, when you're interacting with God's hosts, when they touch your lips means it's your turn to speak. So in Daniel 10.16, that's what happens. So I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O oh, sir, O oh, my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me and I retain no strength. How can the Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, I think Daniel probably thought he was dying. Maybe he thought he was dead. If you were 90 years old and out for a nature walk, and suddenly all the people with you had bailed, and you realize you're talking to Jesus and a bunch of angels, what do you think has happened? You crossed over, my friend, right? This is it, right? So he probably thinks, I'm, I'm either dying or I've already died. What's going on here? He's been suffering for three weeks, falling apart, and the word here that's used for pain, the pains he's been experiencing, is the same word that's used for childbearing, for childbirth. Like, like he, this, is not, this is not like, I'm kind of sore. This is, I am being racked with pain because of what I've experienced. Verse 18, again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me, and he said, O oh man, greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. I don't know if this is the same one who's been talking or yet another being who reaches out and touches him. But here's what struck me about this How are we strengthened? When we're worn down 
when we're, when we're at the bottom, when we have the strong feelings, but they're the hard ones, the negative ones, how are we comforted and how are we strengthened? Notice how here in this passage, Daniel is touched three times. Three different times, creatures, these, these magnificent creatures, whoever they are, they reach out and touch him. Look, in, in chapter 10, 10, behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. Verse 16, behold, one like the likeness of children of man touched my lips. And of course, the one we just read, having the appearance of man touched me and strengthened me. This angelic being showed up and touched me. And then there are kind words. They use these words. Be, be courageous. Be at peace. Over and over again, they encourage it. We've seen this all through the book of Daniel. As, as God has sent messengers to comfort Daniel, to prop him up and to hold him up. That's a really amazing picture to me. It strikes me that, once again, so here we are in the Old Testament. where Remember, if, if you don't know the Old Testament well, if you just trust what people tell you about the Old Testament, you're always expecting to run into this angry, edgy, wrathful, law-based, robo-God who just can't wait to get you and catch you doing what's wrong. I don't understand that. When I read the Old Testament, I see a God who is gentle and who is patient with his people. And even when he disciplines them, he returns them and redeems them and restores them. He never gives up on this rebellious, stiff-necked, edgy, hard-nosed, stubborn people just like us. And he doesn't ever give up on them. And he comforts them in significant ways. I ran into more and more here and now as we go through this that made me think of the end of the book of John. Remember how we were going through John in the last few chapters, we kept saying, at least I kept saying, who is this God? Who does stuff like this? I mean, who, he's got big fish to fry. Why is he comforting Mary of Magdalene? He literally just was resurrected from the dead and has yet to go to the Father. Isn't there a timeline going? Seems like there's a clock running. And stopping and talking to Mary of Magdalene does not prob was probably not on the agenda. But she's hurting and sad, and so Jesus stops and comforts her. He tells her, don't touch me, I've not yet gone to the Father. Now you've gone to the Father? This angry robo-God in the sky, wouldn't he be mad about Jesus stopping and comforting Mary of Magdalene before coming to him first? Not if he is a loving, gentle, enduring God who loves his people and who cares about us as individuals. He is simultaneously engaged in a massive spiritual conflict. And he shows up with a whole entourage to comfort Daniel. Who is this guy? Who does this? What's going on here? Listen, listen to how Jesus is described, prophesied about. In Isaiah 42, 2 and 3, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. One of my favorite pictures, this picture of Jesus, who is so gentle. You ever done that? You ever had a, a wick, a smoldering wick, a candle that you've got to move through the house or something like that, and, and you're trying to, but you've got to cover it and protect it and walk really slowly because it's barely staying alive. And if you do one wrong move, it's going to go out. That's how gentle God is with his people. Or, or a stick that's already broken and it's, it's bent and it's bruised and any, any false move and it's just going to fall apart and yet he can handle that thing so carefully that it, it never breaks off. It's an incredible picture. And here now we have this picture of gentleness in relationship to a frail, sick, and disturbed old man on the bank of the Tigris River. 
Either these messengers who are touching Daniel and comforting Daniel and strengthening Daniel aren't representing Yahweh God well, or Yahweh God is a gentle and loving God. In the midst of how much he hates evil, he loves his creation. In fact, in this passage from Daniel's perspective, it's more about comfort than anything else. We know from verse 1 that understanding isn't Daniel's problem in 10.1. What Daniel needs is comfort, gentleness, who meets us in our frailty and in our failure. In fact, what I want us to do this morning for communion, during our time of communion, and uh, as Paul said, these things are not easy to open, so if you haven't already, you might you know, take a second and start working on that while I talk about this. Um, this idea of of relating to, taking a moment. I want us to take a moment when we have a moment of silence here in a minute that you're thinking about considering, praying to, reaching out to this God of gentle comfort. This God who loves us and who reaches out to us and comforts us in our frailty and our difficulties and our, and our challenges and when we're afraid and when we're alone and when we're struggling that this is a God who loves us enough to do that. And that the picture of communion, which is about remembering Jesus Christ and what He did, and what He did was though He was God, He came and experienced life as a human being with all of our frailties and all of our sicknesses and all of our exhaustion and being cold and tired and sick and hungry and all those things He experienced. And then allowed Himself to be tortured to death to pay the price that we couldn't pay, and then to be resurrected from the grave to conquer death. This is the utter expression of a God who comes to His people because they are greatly loved and give them what it is they need that we even resist and sometimes rebel against. And yet this is the God who we serve. And so I want us to stop and take a moment, breathe and pray and think about and talk to the God who loves your soul like that. And repair ourselves and then we'll take communion in just a moment. Father, we gratefully reach out to you and thank you for the good the goodness of your word, the faithfulness of your son, that you are the gentle kind of God who sends a whole unit of your spiritual soldiers to comfort a man because you love him. I do thank you and praise you that you're the kind of God who comes to seek and save the lost, to rescue the dying. And that we can remember the work of your son, the most magnificent example of that truth about your character. We thank you for this in his name. Amen. Looking to the writings of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way also he took the cup 
after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In proclaiming his death, we proclaim that he's a type of God who comes and seeks and even suffers for the sake of his creation. This great picture of gentleness. In verse 20, the angelic being says, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. When I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. So again, like last week, we talked about this divine council, these, these small g gods, this, 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 this hierarchy of spiritual beings. The prince of Greece, the prince of Persia, the prince of Israel, whose name we know to be Michael. It sounds like this angelic being is opening up about his day and then explaining what's been going on. This word has come to Daniel. And the angelic being speaks, and in 11.1, he starts. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Okay, so back to our pop quiz. Here we're in 536 B.C., 539 B.C. is two years before, and that would have been the first year of Darius and Cyrus. That's when this angelic being went to confirm and strengthen Darius the Mede. Not necessarily a good guy, but who God was using to accomplish his purposes. Literally, Darius was in the process of declaring war and bringing war to an unconquerable city. And then without a, maybe without a drop of blood, we don't know, with very little battle at all, he conquered an unconquerable city and took control of the entire realm, entire kingdom, this city. And then Cyrus declares to fulfill the promise that God had promised his people that at about 70 years, he's going to send his people back home. And that happens because Darius takes this city under Cyrus's reign. So notice that the angel is going to say, okay, here's the word. I'm now going to explain things to you. But understand, what I'm about to explain to you started, not now, but two years ago, three years ago. That's when it started. And I now think that what he's describing is a spiritual civil war. That a war went from being a cold war where spiritual beings maybe had a certain amount of respect for one another. I don't know exactly how this plays out. Maybe it goes further back than that. But that at some time in that period, all of a sudden, that went, became a hot war. And God inspired a civil war among the princes of Greece and Persia and the, the demonic forces within there. And all of a sudden, you have them this, this battle going on. The end times that the angel's reporting doesn't start on that day by the banks of the Tigris, but two years before, when he had been strengthening and Darius the Mede. A spiritual struggle between the forces of Greece and Israel and Persia. There's a spiritual war, maybe a spiritual civil war going on in the nation of Persia, and the forces of good are sending the people of God home, and the forces of evil are trying to thwart the will of the sovereign God. Darius and Cyrus, the Persians, the Persians are no heroes in the Bible, believe me. But God used their power to fulfill his promises, and for two years at this stage, I now believe a spiritual civil war has been raging in the kingdoms and the powers the prince of Greece, the prince of Persia, and Michael are embroiled in a bitter conflict. 
as evil and good face over the will of a sovereign God. And 21 days before, Daniel had prayed. And though the timing was stalled because of this war that's going on, all of a sudden this is a, this is a combat zone in the middle of a powerful war that's going on all around Daniel that he's experiencing somehow. And eventually this incredible entourage came to pass along with the message about the future. All of it. All of it because of insignificant little Daniel. An old, sick, tired man. But he was greatly loved. What a fascinating picture of the forces of heaven and earth being moved. Of a major spiritual civil war being put on pause so that the Son of God and His key figures can come and comfort Daniel. And Prince Caspian, uh, Aslan speaking to, uh, to Prince Caspian, says, You come of the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve, says Aslan. That is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. Be content. That's who we are. In one sense, we're nobodies and feel like nobodies, especially when you put us by these, these great spiritual beings. Jesus Christ and His glory and the entourage that travels with Him, the, the secret service that's with Him, how pathetic Daniel must have felt and why his, his face was, shame, was down in shame and his mouth closed and yet invited to speak, and the angels keep repeating this over and over again, Daniel, you are greatly loved. Brother, we're back. We were just here a couple of years ago. We don't know why God keeps sending us back to you. What's so special about you? All we know is this, you are greatly loved. I want your picture of God to be expanded to include this type of a God who is crazy about us, who's crazy about his people. This is the God who came back in a special event for Thomas. After the resurrection when Thomas didn't believe and Jesus comes back yet again and shows Thomas, nope, it's really me. That's, that, that visitation seems to be entirely for Thomas. Or even much bigger than that, when, when Jesus comes back to the shore of the Sea of Galilee and puts on this skit where he recreates the calling of Peter in order to reconfirm Peter in his calling. You can go back to these in our John teaching. Again, the type of God who stops to have a conversation with Mary Magdalene, who calls the woman with the issue of blood daughter and the paralyzed man son. The God who chooses and loves us. This is a powerful picture. And when we face challenges and difficulties to remember that in the midst of all of that, that you have a God who sends a whole team of people to come to comfort Daniel. Who does this? What kind of a God is this who pulls off this kind of stuff? When we're caught up in our sin and our frailty and our fear and our pain and whatever it else, and we think, well, no, I mean, there's no way God cares or there's no way. Really? Because it seems to me like he does. Think of this. Those of us who, who have been persuaded by his gospel, who, um, who have trusted in him, he has created us, chosen us, purchased us, gifted us, died for us, sealed us, renamed us, found us, sought us, and adopted us, and so much more. This is, this is a God who's crazy about his people. We are his treasure, and he's done it all with great joy, though it took him to the cross. So I would encourage you, those of you who don't, who've never accepted these free gifts of a God who's crazy about you, that you would. For those of us who have, let's remember that. Let's Today, as we remember what Christ has done, remember who we are to Him. 
Let that inspire us to be treasure hunters ourselves, people who go into the world and declare the truth of who he is through the way we live our lives.